Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about the Iowa caucuses and the State of the Union and how those are traditions that we should think about getting rid of. They've sort of run their course and usefulness in reminding us about our values in the Republic. I also wrote about how Elizabeth Warren's campaign is a complete and total technocratic failure, and it is proof, just another data point, if you will, for how technocrats always seem to find a way to lose, even when everything is laid out for them to win in a situation. And then finally, the newsletter this week covered the New Hampshire election results, so if you want to go back and read what I said about that, you can do that. I'm also going to talk through them today. So if that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. It's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you, and so just sign up for that, and it is free. And finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and it also helps me improve the show week to week. So I look forward to hearing from you in those reviews. And with that, we can jump into this week's show where I'm going to be talking about, like I said, the New Hampshire results, and then I'm going to give my predictions at the end for what I think is going to happen in Nevada. We haven't had a lot of really good, clean polling yet out of that state. There's been a few polls. If you go and look at places like Real Clear Politics or even on 538, their tracker holds a few of them. But even they're complaining that we don't have enough polling of Nevada. Usually, Nevada is not that important of a state even though it's the third primary for both Republicans and Democrats. But it usually... It pales in comparison to, say, South Carolina, where you get into the importance of the black vote, and also it's the state that springboards us into Super Tuesday. But this year, I think Nevada is going to be important just because it's going to tell us a little bit what the narrative is going to be going into South Carolina, and you're we're really going to start nailing down whether or not some of these formerly top-tier candidates, people like Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, whether or not they actually have a legitimate chance to compete in both South Carolina and in Super Tuesday. So that's what I'm going to cover towards the end of the show. We're going to start out talking through some quick hits that I had this week. And the first one that I want to talk about is uh, you may have seen over the weekend you had Donald Trump at the Daytona 500. He had his motorcade drive, the Beast, as they call it, his uh, the presidential limousine. They were driving it around the track and led the cars around. It was really cool. I think at one point they even they sent Air Force One over the stadium. I think that was after after he left. Uh, really cool sight just to see all of that. It was the first time it's ever happened. And then if you were you know, sitting there, you had that on TV. If you also had Twitter up, you might have also seen the national journalist freaking out over this. It was somewhat comical to listen to some of this go down just because they were freaking out about how Trump was wasting taxpayer money for taking the presidential motorcade around the Daytona 500 and having Air Force One there. And they were calling it a, a campaign event, and it was just a complete and total waste of taxpayer dollars. 
And, you know, this is the area that they decide to have their freak out about all of our tax dollars, even though we're, we're trillions of dollars in debt at this point. And it, frankly, we're probably saving money because we uh, we canceled the White House Correspondents' Dinner. We canceled the daily White House press briefings so they don't have their daily stories to run back to. So we're, we're saving some money on that front. So, you know, we're probably good to send the presidential motorcade around the Daytona 500. And, you know, presidents have been doing stuff like this for forever. Just because Trump was the first to do it at the Daytona doesn't mean we haven't had similar types of events. You know, like... Oh, I don't know, maybe a president throwing out a baseball at a stadium, maybe going and serving the troops on Thanksgiving, maybe, you know, combining official business in the state while also hitting up a campaign event. This stuff has happened since the beginning of the Republic. It's not that big of a deal. And no, as I've seen some of the more far-flung people on the left post, there was no legal violation here. There was no law that was violated by driving the motorcade around the racetrack. That is a real thing that is being pushed by real journalists in America, and you're welcome for letting you know, because now you know just like I do. So that's all I've got on that point. The second thing I wanted to cover is that Michael Avenatti a former lawyer for Stormy Daniels, who was the savior of the Republic, according to some people in the media. He's in jail. He is behind bars. And you kind of have to go through a list of what it could have possibly been. I was going through some of my old notes to figure out what I'd said about him early on, and nothing about it was kind. But I realized one of the early things that I posted about him had to do with him being arrested over a domestic violence incident which I never saw the end of that and where that ended up going because he ended up going to jail for extortion over Nike because the Department of Justice busted him in a sting operation, and now he's behind bars. That man appeared 121 times. I believe, I can't remember if that was just CNN or media appearances altogether. I think that might have just been CNN because he was everywhere, and they were pumping him up left and right. This morning I saw a person over at the Bulwark. She wrote that, you know, Michael Avenatti, the, the reason that he was a big deal in the media is because of Donald Trump. And I just wanted to look at her and say, are you, are you crazy? Because the only reason that he existed is because, and got all the attention that he did is because the media decided to make him the story instead of his case. That was the interesting thing that happened there. Avenatti and everything that he was doing was always the story. He never got anywhere with the Stormy Daniels case. In fact, she fired him. He always made things about himself. And so they're the ones who fed into that and allowed him to become what he was. And now he's in jail. He also has me blocked on Twitter, which I think I've bragged about on this podcast before. I'm not sure. I know I've bragged about it in the newsletter. It's kind of, you know, one of those awesome things when I found out that I was blocked. He blocked a lot of people, so it's not that big of a deal. But it was pretty funny to find out that mocking him earned me a particular block in that case. Because I'm not a big Twitter presence, even though I use it all the time. But I am blocked by him. So, you know, good to know. And then finally, in this quick section, I wanted to share a clip of Michael Bloomberg, who's running for president now and hitting all the Super Tuesday states. Just the opposition hits against him are coming at him left and right now. The media is just dropping bomb after bomb on him. I can't quite tell 
which campaign is probably the one feeding the media all these hits. Probably Bernie Sanders' campaign. I could see them doing it. You could probably see it from some of the others. I doubt it's from any of the mainstream establishment types, just because Bloomberg has been such a heavy donator to a lot of their campaigns and causes. So that's why they've treated him with kid gloves so far. But that And so that kind of serves him up perfectly for someone like Bernie Sanders. So I imagine they're the ones feeding some of this stuff out. But... In any event, they're all true hits. It's all stuff that he's done, at least for what we can tell. And in this particular clip, uh, the reason I found it interesting is because he's visiting a Jewish family that just had a family member die. And I think, I'm not quite sure the term that they, they used in the piece, but he's visiting them while they're in their mourning process. And he's talking about health care, the costs of health care, and how we can reduce healthcare costs over time and his description is a little chilling because you're you're hearing this sort of technocratic view utilitarian type of type of mindset talking about how to reduce healthcare and it doesn't really have anything to do with increasing care or increasing the supply of healthcare in the system it's about how to get rid of costs get rid of people who are dragging the system down. So I had to boost the volume on this because he's sitting in a living room. This is not an official discussion, but here's Michael Bloomberg talking about how to reduce the costs of healthcare. And what things they can't fix right away. You know, if you're bleeding, they'll stop the bleeding. If you need an x-ray, you're going to have to wait. That's just, and all of these costs keep going up. Nobody wants to pay any more money. And at the rate we're going, healthcare is going to bankrupt us. So not only do we have a problem, it's going to bankrupt us. And we've got to sit here and say which things we're going to do and which things we're not. Nobody wants to do that. You know, if you show up with prostate cancer and you're 95 years old, we should say, go and enjoy, have a nice spoon, lead a long life. There's no cure, and you can't do it. If you're a young person, we should do something about it. Society's not willing to do that yet. So we're going to bankrupt us, and we're not looking at... That's all I have the, of the clip there. There's, I think there's a longer version where it goes on and he talks about even further what to do, but it's, it sort of gives you this, this, this view into his mind of what he's thinking about doing here. And, and I know his example is of him using a 95-year-old that has prostate cancer that comes in and that we shouldn't treat them at that point just because it's just a, a loss of anything that we should do. But if it's a young person... We should go ahead and help them out in that situation. And that's such a, it's such a, it's a bad way to view it because it's bad in this case because he's talking about young and old, which are just frankly relative terms here because he, he's defining it how he wants to. The real case here, the real difficult case you're making is someone who's 65. And, that, and if you're listening to this clip, that's kind of what you know he's actually saying here. He's not really talking about a person who's 95 and has prostate cancer. That's not the person who's a drag on the system. It's the person who's 65, retired, and hits one of these diseases, and so they're not contributing back into the tax pool of money available to pay for these operations if you're a state or local government. 
That's who he's really talking about here, who's the drain. And so, you know, people joked at the time in 2008 and nine about Sarah Palin talking, Sarah Palin, I should say, talking about death panels. And and in this case, you don't even have a panel. You just have Bloomberg who's deciding who's young and who's old and who should receive care and who should not. He wants to have this system where we can start cutting these people off to contain costs. And that's not really the point of some of these healthcare companies. The point is to provide the care regardless. And I know that that's a drain on the system, but it is a choice in a lot of cases that we've chosen to make that we're going to provide this regardless of what age or what condition someone's in. And if you hit these socialized systems or these these top-down approaches like Bloomberg wants, you get these types of decisions where they're more focused on containing costs than they are providing care. That's how you get these weight lines and these other things and these socialized systems because choices are being made about who gets these sort of these this treatment and who doesn't get it. So that's what his mindset is in on that. It's obviously different than somebody like Bernie Sanders who wants to provide Medicare for all. We're going to touch on that a little bit when we talk about the results out of New Hampshire because there's some interesting stuff if you, if you look forward to Nevada. But that is the mindset of Michael Bloomberg. This is one of many hits that are coming out. This clip in particular was going viral, and some of his supporters were trying to defend him on that point. But this is who he is. He views things in ones and zeros and in dollar signs and trying to control all those different things. So that's what you have to look forward to. We have great people, obviously, as you can tell, on the Democratic side of the aisle. So that's all for the quick hits. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll start in on the New Hampshire results. The most amazing thing has happened out of New Hampshire. We have results. We have actual, verifiable results where all the precincts are reporting and everybody is accounted for and we have finishers in the New Hampshire primaries. That's how you hold a vote. Now, I realize it's different from a caucus, but we still have votes and results out of New New Hampshire's primary. Everything in New Hampshire went off without a hitch because everybody just went in, they voted, they went home, and then they watched the results come in. That's generally why a primary is superior to a caucus, even though I enjoy everything about a caucus and watching all of the politicking going on in a caucus system. But in this case, there were no apps, there was nothing else. They just rolled out their election equipment, used it for the primaries, and we got the results, and they came in. So if you enjoy watching results go in and getting actual data to work on, a primary system is always fun because you're probably going to be done by about 9 or 10 o'clock that night. And in this case, it was a little later in in the case of New Hampshire because the race tightened up between Sanders and Buttigieg towards the end. There was a gap between Buttigieg and Klobuchar. But the gap between Bernie and Mayor Pete was close enough to keep things from being called early on in the night. So the big storylines coming out of New Hampshire, the first one I wanted to cover real quick is is turnout, because turnout was up. It matched in New Hampshire what they saw in previous primaries in 2008, because 2008 is really the 
the standard here for a high turnout because Obama and Clinton turned out a lot of people, and you had a lot of people on that side, and you also had a lot of people on the other side in 2008 with McCain and the, and the others all running in that race. So that is the standard here for a high turnout race, and Democrats did exceed that a little bit. As Sean Trende pointed out, there's no real growth here because there's there's a lot of intervening years between 2008 and 2020, and you don't have a Republican primary on the other side pulling in independent voters. So this is really the only show in town, and turnout really and truly, based on what their expectations were, it only met expectations. It didn't wildly exceed them. So when you look at that and compare it with what happened in Iowa, right now you're looking at turnout happening at sort of a, it's meeting expectations, but it's not wildly exceeding expectations like what we saw in 2018 in the midterms. So that's two states now where you're looking at Democrats and and asking where are they going to get this high turnout again because it looks like that might have lost a little steam, maybe not much. But the other interesting thing about turnout is if you, if you looked on the other side, because there was, like in Iowa, a Republican primary. Now, the hilarious thing about the Republican primary or the caucus in Iowa, is that it worked swimmingly. There were no problems there at all. They they got everything off the ground running smoothly. They didn't use the Democrat system. They used just the old way that always has worked. And so they, they got off without a hitch. And the Republican primary in New Hampshire also went off without a hitch. But the interesting thing here is that turnout was up in the Republican primary as well. Usually in the New Hampshire primary, the last four, four or five cycles, you're looking at between 50 to 60,000 people voting on the Republican side when there's no one, you know, running, when it's an off year, when you have an incumbent president who's doing his thing and running for a second term, there's usually not going to be a strong contender there that you can point to. And in this case, it was the same situation. There was Joe Walsh and Bill Weld who were there on the ballot, but they were really non-factors because they haven't really run anything that you can even call a campaign. They would, if you were putting them in in the Democratic field, they would be below 1%. We wouldn't even be talking about them, just like we aren't talking about the Republican side. But instead of hitting the 50, 40 to 60,000 range, Republicans had 129,000 people turn out for their primary, which is about half about what you would expect in a full-blown primary. We have everybody there. In, uh, I think it was 2016, they had close to 230,000 people vote. So with 100, uh, 129 there, you, you've got a pretty sizable group there, almost half, a little less than that. So it was a good turnout for them. And we're not really sure what to make of that because it's not something that you'd ever seen before. So it could say that there's some excitement on the Republican side of voting for Trump again in some of these states, places like Iowa. So if we see some of these similar type numbers in the Midwest, we might be coming circling back and looking at this result in New Hampshire and saying, well, there's, been, there's some growing support for people to vote for Donald Trump. So something to keep in the back of your mind as you're watching these results as they come in. So that's the big storyline on turnout. The Obviously the biggest story overall and the one that should, that, that should and for the most part did lead all the headlines was Bernie Sanders is the clear front runner right now. You can really ignore any other storyline on this point because it is all about him. He has 
the only good shot at winning delegates and winning a delegate lead before we get to the convention, which is held in the summer. The last primaries are held on June 6th in the Virgin Islands, so that's a long way to go between then and now, but he's got that amount of time to get a lead in the delegates before he gets to the convention. But even though he is the clear frontrunner runner right now, he's not a strong frontrunner. It was a close victory that he had in New Hampshire. Last time he ran in 2016, he won by about 20, 22 points over Hillary Clinton. He won decisively. He was, in that race, the protest vote for everyone, and he's not getting that amount of support this time around. So he's not getting or hitting his 2016 numbers because Hillary Clinton's not in the race, and it's not just the two of them running and piling up votes and delegates. So instead of hitting 40 to 60% like he was hitting in some of these states, now he's only down to about 25%. So we're really just at his single base of support. He has a very small plurality in the race. He's the only one with a very clear base that's going to be there for him in most of these states. It's just a matter of who can come close to toppling him. And in in this race, it was Pete Buttigieg because Iowa and New Hampshire have similarly aligned electrics in that there's a lot of white people in both of them, and so that allows somebody like Buttigieg or Elizabeth Warren to compete well. And in New Hampshire, Warren didn't do that. She competed very poorly, in fact. Amy Klobuchar was the one who was able to come in and take third place, and between her, Mayor Pete, and Bernie, they pretty much divvied up the entirety of the field. About 75% of the entire vote went to one of those three after Klobuchar's strong showing in the New Hampshire debate that was held beforehand. But with all that, even with all that, Bernie Sanders is still the front runner. He has right now in the 538 model a 36% chance of winning a delegate majority. That means in one in three scenarios when they run all the possibilities that could happen here, in one in three of those, he gets a delegate majority before the convention hits. hits. So that means if he's got that lead, he can go in and when all the delegates vote, and there can be multiple rounds of voting, but the first round that happens, he's going to have that majority and he's going to get the nomination. What gets interesting is when he doesn't have that delegate lead. So if he goes into the convention and he doesn't have that clear majority and everyone's just bound for the first vote of voting who they are, he's going to lose the first ballot. Now the question after that is what happens after that ballot is the mere fact that he could have a strong plurality, which is which he has more than anybody else, but not the amount that he needs. Will they just still go to him or will there be a fight? So that's the thing to watch here, because even though he has a 36% chance of getting a delegate majority, the number one scenario right now in 538's model is the contested convention. It's that no one gets a delegate majority before the convention hits here. And it's not a strong difference between Bernie and and the convention, the contested convention, it's a 38% chance for a no one to win a delegate majority. That's a two in five chance. So it's a slight difference. And between the two of them, you get 74% of the scenarios that 538 sees happening. So it's either Bernie Sanders or no one at this point really is all that their model sees 
winning. So those are the two things to watch. And like I said, they have until June 6th, which is, the last one is in the Virgin Islands. So if you if we're watching candidates go out to the Virgin Islands to try to get a delegate lead, you know we've got a very close race. And they're probably going back to Iowa to figure out who's getting all the delegates there too. So you have no one winning and Bernie Sanders winning as the two key, and that's about 74%. And then everybody else in the race divvies up the rest of that pie. So no one really has a strong chance here. And in fact, if you really want to know how how long the odds for everyone, Joe Biden still has a 14% chance of coming back and surging back in the lead and winning a delegate lead right now, and that gives him the third best chance here. And the reason for that is his strength with black voters. We haven't seen any state test that yet. We've seen Biden's support falter here among this demographic in the Democratic Party, which is really key, but we haven't seen any of them really vote yet, and so to be a deciding factor. And that's about to come up, because Nevada and South Carolina are worlds different than Iowa and New Hampshire. In Nevada, you have a stronger Hispanic population, and in South Carolina, you have a very strong black population and black community there. And in both states, those groups tend to decide who's going to win. It's a little different in uh, in Nevada because they have a very powerful union out there, which we're going to talk about when we get to the Nevada section. But these these two groups in these two states, Hispanics and black voters, are going to decide this election moving forward, particularly on Super Tuesday, which is probably going to be the key day that's going to decide where these marbles are headed with all these candidates. Because in the Super Tuesday states, even though California was added, six of the 14 states that vote on that day are in the American South and have very strong populations of black voters. So you're talking about places like Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, places like that, they're going to be voting. And so black voters have a much larger share and a much larger say of what's going to happen in the Democratic Party. So it's vital to learn who they are leaning towards in order to determine which way the party is going to go. There were some video clips floating around earlier in the week by Steve Kornacki and some others at MSNBC, and they were pointing out that at the end of March, so March, much farther along than we are now, Michael Dukakis and, who was it? It was uh, Jesse Jackson, were both tied at the de- in delegates at the end of March. And so people then were talking about a contested convention. And what happened then, after that, is Michael Dukakis was able to basically cobble together a coalition of two different sets of white voters in the Democratic Party and then use that to power ahead and surge ahead while Jesse Jackson held black voters and the South and in some key union states like Michigan where he won. So that happened at the end of March where they tied up and a lot of the changes that what happened in the Democratic Party are all these you know, proportional delegates and everything else. All of that happened as a result of Jesse Jackson and that race. So it could go, we could be seeing a repeat here where we're going to see a tight race up until through March until we're able to figure out who's going to end up being able to go the distance. And so there's a long way to go. And because Outside of Bernie Sanders, everyone's polling very poorly. We know someone has to leap forward 
out of this pack to challenge Bernie Sanders. It happens in every race. Someone has to do it. Which is, so that's why you're seeing people cover people like Bloomberg and Buttigieg and Klobuchar because we think they have to jump forward here to be the second place challenger because no one has really seized that second place place yet to let us know who's going to be the main challenger to Bernie Sanders. And right now it's no one. And if it's no one, it ends up being no one. That means we're going to have more than likely a contested convention in the summer, which, you know, I am obviously rooting for because that's what I want to see more than anything. So after, after no one and and Bernie Sanders, and Biden, it really drops off a cliff. You might be surprised to know that in the 538 model, the fourth place, the fourth best scenario of happening is Michael Bloomberg getting a delegate lead, and he has a 7% chance of doing that. That's 1 in 15. After him, it's Pete Buttigieg, who is at 4%, 1 in 25. After that, it's Elizabeth Warren. I wrote a column this week basically saying her campaign is dead because after looking at the results, you would believe that she only has a 2% chance or a 1 in 50 shot of coming out with a delegate lead. Because frankly, at this point, it would just have to be a miracle on her part. Because any place where she does well with voters, someone like Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg also does well. And from all the evidence we have out of North, I mean, out of New Hampshire, what happened to her is that all the bulk of her vote ended up going to Amy Klobuchar. So she doesn't have a sticky base of support to rely on like somebody like Bernie Sanders. She has to get them to come back to her. And so that's why her odds have dropped so low because the areas where we would expect her to do well, other people have taken her strength and made it their own. So she doesn't have as much to work with now moving forward. I I, I can't really name a single state where I think she's going to be competitive. And that's something to say because one of the states that's going to happen on Super Tuesday is her home state of Massachusetts. And I'm not even sure she's going to win there. She already had a week showing there and when she won re-election. And so the Republican governor who won office there outperformed her. So that should tell you a little bit about her standing even in her own home state. The only reason she won is because a Republican had won it, Scott Brown, over the Obamacare vote. And then after he you know, was up for re-election, again, she was able to win it because that's what you would expect to happen. It's kind of what we're waiting to happen in Alabama. You had Doug Jones, who won over Roy Moore. It was an extreme situation that happened, and so that's not going to happen again because you're either going to have Jeff Sessions re-win his old seat or you're going to have Tommy Tuberville come out of that race. One of those two is going to have it, and if they get the nomination, they're going to beat Doug Jones, and they're going to beat him by probably between 15 to 20 points. It's not even going to be a close race. So that's sort of the same situation that happened with Elizabeth Warren. She's going to rewin a seat that her party should have, but she's underperforming and rewinning that seat. And I think that's going to—that's what's getting her here. She never really had as strong of a base of support as everyone said she had and everyone pretended that she had. But the one thing that is real coming out of New Hampshire is Amy Klobuchar. The Clomentum, as they're calling it, is real. But the question you have to ask yourself with her third-place finish and all the votes that she piled up, and she did pile up a lot, as I pointed out in the newsletter, you could combine Elizabeth Warren and 
Joe Biden's vote together, and you would come up short to all the votes that Amy Klobuchar piled up in third place. And Elizabeth Warren came in fourth. So if you combine fourth and fifth place, you would not even equal the third place amount of votes, which really tells you about what happened here. All the votes really piled up into three different people. So her momentum is real. Clementum is real. But you have to ask yourself of, is this momentum that she's built up after this single moment here in New Hampshire, is this going to last or is it too late for her? Because you're asking her, at this point, she's been a non-entity in the entire primaries. So you're asking her, a person with no infrastructure in places like Nevada and in South Carolina, and no infrastructure really in any of the states on Super Tuesday. You're asking her to go from nothing to competing across the board when she really hasn't had the money to do that. So she has to rely on her national name recognition and the media presence that she's getting from all of this in order to show that she's got a shot at making a splash here in these states. And you have to wonder if, it, if this is her moment in New Hampshire, if she's hit that a little too late, even though she's gobbling up all of Elizabeth Warren's set of voters. Because in reality, if you're looking at what she did, it looks like she cost Pete Buttigieg a shot at winning New Hampshire because the two of them split up the moderate vote, the the anti-Bernie vote. Everyone liked pointing out that, you know, if you combine all these people together, you would get more people than Bernie Sanders, which is why people point out, you know, that he is a weak candidate, but he has a base. Everyone else is scrambling around trying to figure out who can, one, beat Donald Trump, and two, win the primary. Because those are two separate questions, and right now, no one, and and this is especially true of voters, no one knows who to go for in order to get the victory they want across the board. So her momentum is real, but there is reason to think that it's a little too late for her, that she's not going to be able to translate this into strong victories across the board. She may just be putting up second and third place finishes in a lot of these states with maybe a surprise here or there. Her home state of Minnesota is one of the states that is up on Super Tuesday, so that could come back to be a major base for her where she's able to launch and say, hey, I won one of these states. I'm not just a flash in the pan in New Hampshire. So that's what to watch with her. She has to build a campaign that's going to compete in places like New Hampshire and Nevada. She's got to do that fast. I don't know that she's going to be able to do that this quickly. So the question is, is how well is she going to compete on Super Tuesday when she has a place like Minnesota that she can win? And how does she build from there? So you have all of these people, the top four, and how they're all doing with Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Joe Biden. I'm not really counting Elizabeth Warren anymore because I don't think she really has a true shot. I'm not even sure at this point. I think she's going to stay in until Super Tuesday, but she's already seeding Nevada and South Carolina. So I don't see Elizabeth Warren as a true threat here unless she gets some surprise result. So that means outside of them, you have to figure out what Mike Bloomberg's doing because in national polls, he has basically advertised blitzed himself into the conversation where he's pulling at least in fourth place in these national polls, pushing either Klobuchar or Buttigieg out of the picture entirely and competing directly with Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren. So he's basically in the national polls only right now become a top-tier candidate 
who is challenging these others on who's going to take over this Joe Biden moderate lane. And if he continues fracturing this, it's going to make it easier for somebody like Bernie Sanders to just sort of blithely go through this process with only about 25% of the vote. But because everyone else is so fractured, he's going to be able to maintain that plurality all the way through. Because in these national polls, Bloomberg is hitting between 10 and 15% right now. And if people continue to falter, he's going to go up just due to the sheer amount of money and resources he's pouring both into waves across the country and in these Super Tuesday states. If you're in a place like you know Tennessee or Alabama, you're seeing these campaign ads that you normally don't see in these cycles because he is all over these airwaves all across the internet. He's paying off these Instagram influencers. He's dropping money everywhere. I think he was even paying some of his staff, these young 20-year-olds who are going in to run campaign events for him in some of these states. He's paying some of them $6,500 a month just to do this stuff for him. So you have to watch him moving forward to know exactly what's going to happen in the race long term because he's going to impact these Super Tuesday states. We don't have a lot of polling out of these states, which is why we're relying more on national polling to tell us what could be happening on a state level because we we just don't know. He's just blasting the airwaves all across the board here, and we know he's gaining momentum now because the campaigns are starting to drop opposition research on him, which is not that hard, admittedly, but he's going to continue climbing from what we can tell, and he's going to make it harder for people like Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar to consolidate their base and build a wall to go against Bernie Sanders. So this non-Bernie Sanders vote, which is you know anywhere from... 75%, 75, 80%, some maybe less, around 70% of the entire party, they're having trouble consolidating around a candidate that can beat Bernie Sanders in any of these states. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should because this is what happened in 2016. Although Trump's base and the Republican Party was closer to 35%, which is what made him so difficult to to beat in a lot of these states because his base of support was larger than Bernie Sanders by about 8 to 10 points. So that made it easier for him to run up these plurality victories. It's harder for Bernie Sanders because if anyone has a breakout moment, like Pete Buttigieg is having, where he almost beat him in New Hampshire, and he lost in the vote total in New Iowa, but was able to get more delegates. So these people can, if they had less competition, potentially topple Bernie, but it's not there yet. They're still all split up. So the question is, how big of a plurality of voters is it going to take to win this thing? Bernie Sanders could conceivably do it with only having about 25%, which is really crazy because you're talking about a super, super divided field. And we know that even if some of these others drop out, all their voters are not going to run to the the moderate candidates, some of them may even go to Bernie Sanders. So he's going to be able to increase his vote share if some of these people drop out. So it's a matter of what can you get away with and win this thing. And right now he's the only one in the entire Democratic Party with a base of support that he can count on in every last single race to get him at least within striking distance where he's always at 20 to 25%. So it's just a matter of winning just enough people to beat this, the next person in line. And so far he's been able to do that. So 
if he if he's not able to get that lead by the convention, it's going to be a very difficult case for him to make that, you know, he if he's only got 25% of the vote, it's it's a pretty hard hard case to make that he should be representative of the entire party. Now admittedly this also goes for everyone else too. They've got to make a case that they can unify the entire party. But now it, it's it's not about lanes or anything else. It's just about piling up momentum and delegates and that is getting harder by the day. When Super Tuesday rolls around and we award all the delegates from that day, we're going to be done with about 30, 35, 38 percent of the overall total delegates that are to be awarded. So it's going to be harder from there, that point out because there's going to be a lot, including in states like California and Texas, which are very important. They are already going to be awarded out. So you can't count on some of these big states to give you a monster win later on. So keep watching, you know, the size and the base of these of these different candidates because that's going to determine how far they can go moving forward. So after the break here, we're going to jump into Nevada and we'll go through my predictions for the Nevada caucuses. There's only one way to describe the early reports we're getting out of Nevada. And they're all bad. Local news, national news, it doesn't matter who it is, they're all reporting the same thing, that Nevada, the Nevada Democratic Party, they started out with an app, an app very similar. In fact, in some cases, I wonder if it was actually designed by Shadow Inc., the same people behind the Iowa app. They've all reported that Nevada started out there, They that the Nevada Democratic Party has now ditched this app, and now they've banned the use of the word app, and they're now using a, in heavy quotation marks here, a, a tool to count the votes for their caucus. And apparently this tool is also causing, causing them a lot of problems too because they're talking about switching to Google Spreadsheets. They haven't tested any of these systems so far, and there are multiple reports now where volunteers are saying they don't know how some of these systems work, they don't know how to count them. They don't know how the, it works even as far as the counting goes because the instructions they're getting are that the spreadsheet will do all the counting. So just count on that. So if the spreadsheet fails, they're not going to know the proper way to hand count these results. So everything out of Nevada right now sounds like another potential mess on par with what happened in Iowa. Now, they're obviously scrambling trying to fix all of that, and they may be able to do that by the time the election hits, but they are indeed still scrambling to try and fix an issue that should not be an issue at this point. They are trying to fix it. They're trying to reassure voters, precincts, campaigns, because they've got all these problems with the way they're going to count them. And here is, here, here's the key part to all of this. Voting has already started. Voting in the state of Nevada, in the Democratic primaries, they have early voting, and it started over the weekend. In fact, John Ralston, one of the key reporters out there, he said that around 18,000 votes had already been cast in the Nevada primaries, and we have no idea, no idea at all, how they're going to be counting these ballots so far. They're expecting somewhere between 80,000 to 100,000 people will cast votes, which will put them in the range of what happened between 2008 and 2016. So nothing super fancy. They're expecting about what they would normally get in a primary like this. So 
everything out of Nevada right now sounds like a mess. I'm hoping that they can fix it because if they don't, and you see both Iowa and Nevada go down in flames with their caucus system, you're going to, I, I would be shocked, I wouldn't be shocked at all if Democrats just got rid of their caucuses altogether and moved to primaries across the board. Maybe with something like a ranked choice where you can vote for your first, second, third place uh, options for president. But in any event, it wouldn't shock me if caucuses look totally different four years from now. The other big thing out of Nevada is this fight between the biggest union in the state, the Culinary Union, and Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders obviously wants Medicare for all. That is where you replace every last single health insurance and plan and health care provider with Medicare for everyone. So the hundreds of millions of people who have private health insurance through their employer, they would lose that and they would be immediately put on this Medicare system where everything goes to the government. So he wants to do that. The problem with these unions, particularly the culinary union, who have fought over long decades to get good health care insurance and health care just provisions in general for their employees, is that they want to continue giving this to their union members because it is the reason that they basically exist. And what you're seeing with Bernie Sanders is that because he wants to do this from the top down and dictate wages by setting a, a higher minimum wage and other things, is that that is a, in complete and total odds with these people who are in these unions who have been negotiating with private employers for a very long time to set all of this across the industry. So you have the culinary union in their big, in their big pamphlet to all of their people they lined up all the candidates. Interesting enough, Elizabeth Warren was not one of the people that they listed, but they listed everyone. And they also listed what each person's stance was on health care. So with Bernie Sanders, you had Medicare for all. With Pete Buttigieg, you had Medicare for everyone who wants it. And with Joe Biden, it was building to work on what the culinary union had and expand Obamacare. So basically, it, it was what everyone believed in a short sentence. Bernie Sanders was the only one who had the bullet point next to his name that would have said Medicare for All would completely get rid of the culinary union. So if you support your local union you're, and you vote for Bernie Sanders, you're voting for someone who's going to get rid of that union. And it's not just, in their case, it's a little bit different because it's not just that they have these health care plans that they've negotiated and gotten better year over year. It's that the culinary union has taken the extra step of also building a health care center for all of their employees. So they've gone the extra mile. And if you go and go with Medicare for all, you're, you're getting rid of all of that because that becomes a government-run system at that point. So all of their hard work goes down the drain. So you have this interesting oppositional force here to Bernie Sanders, which is coming from people who are in a union. So a really odd place to be. And so they didn't endorse anyone. They they learned their lesson in 2008 that if they decide to endorse someone before the caucus, that it goes wrong for them. They create a lot of bad blood. So they did not endorse. They've not really endorsed since then. They didn't endorse in 2016 and they haven't endorsed this year. They do on some of the lower ballot stuff, but on the presidential level, they have chosen to stay out. But in their, their things that they're sending to their you know, the union members, it's it's got this anti-Bernie stuff in it. It's not very strong, but it is there. 
So it's one of these interesting scenarios that's happening where you have a union fighting Bernie Sanders. So if it does indeed, if Bernie does indeed come down with this and he's in the general election against Trump, you could see this weird dynamic where even more people who are in unions decide to vote for Trump because they want to keep their union status and they don't want to vote for somebody like Bernie Sanders who's going to take away all the benefits that they get from their union which would be this weird scenario where the Republican Party suddenly becomes, at least for an election, the champion of the union worker, which is not a place they've ever been, as far as I'm aware of. So that's where we stand there. You have the fight between the unions and the socialists. You have no, the, no official endorsements being made, but there's still some potential bad blood being built here between Bernie's camp and everyone else. The key vote here, outside of the union vote, is the Hispanic vote, because there's a large Hispanic uh, population in Nevada. So when you add them to the union voters, you pretty much get who is going to help decide the race. There's about 60,000 people in the union there. There's obviously some overlap between those two. Bernie has largely struggled with minority groups and older voters, so he's expected to win Nevada. In fact, I, I fully expect him to win, but just because this is what's happened so far. So he should be able to keep his base and build a little bit. So the question is, can he turn that win, even in a place where he could be weak, can he turn that into momentum to keep his challengers at bay? And that'll be the big thing to watch. If Bernie wins, how big is his win? If it's still small, that means there's a window open to continue to attack him and win back some of these states that he's winning over everyone else. The other big question about Nevada, are we actually going to get results that day? Everything that we've seen so far, it, it actually may not happen. They may have struggles like Iowa with, with their app if it goes down because they haven't stress tested it. And if you're trying to get this system, which you haven't stress tested at all, to account for 80 to 100,000 votes, that's asking an awful lot for your new technology system to do. So there is a chance we can end up in another Iowa where people are trying waiting and waiting and waiting and not getting results for days, and in Iowa's case, sometimes even weeks. So there is that to watch. Are we going to get an Iowa 2.0? I'm willing to put some faith in here. I don't think we will get this just because I think they'll end up just going trying to go back to the old system. But if they can't do that, we could have another Iowa on our hands. Weirdly enough, that would help Bernie and Biden by slowing down people's ability to drop out of the race and assess what happened. So it would could potentially... In Biden's case, it could slow any faltering that he's having and, and, and actually help boost him a little bit by people saying, well, we don't know the results there, so we're just going off New Hampshire. He performed poorly, but he's still strong enough, so we could vote for him and launch him here. And it also helps Bernie because it keeps the field well divided. Because people, will don't, if they don't know who won or who lost, they don't have a reason to drop out. So the more divided the field is, the better off it is for Bernie. And the more Biden can hang on legitimately, the better it is for him to be able to make a comeback. So those are the big things to watch out of there. We need more polls, especially polls that include a healthy subset of black voters, because we need to know what they're thinking to kind of figure out the campaigns in particular need this because we would like to know where they're leaning, especially in places like Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama, and Texas, because those are the big states where they are located 
in on Super Tuesday, and, and just frankly, they're going to decide what happens here. They have the most power as a demographic group going into these early primaries from South Carolina to, to Super Tuesday and a few states after that. So they have a very large say in what's going to happen here. And we don't really know what they're thinking because we don't have a lot of polling of these states in Nevada and South Carolina and the Super Tuesday states. We don't have a strong feel for what they're thinking and what's happening, especially with all these Bloomberg ads that are coming in. We don't have a strong feeling for what's happening here under the surface. So given all of that, even with all the little polling that we do have... My prediction, as I've already alluded to so far, is that Bernie Sanders is going to win this outright. He's probably going to have between 26 to 30 percent of the overall vote here. I don't think you're going to see him hit some massive number, even with his momentum already there. Because the field is so divided, people don't have to worry about voting for him as a protest vote. They can lodge their complaints through other candidates. The interesting person to watch here for me is Tom Steyer. I have him in second place, making a surprise showing in second place here because he's put a lot of time and resources into Nevada, and he's polled in some places around 10%. And if Biden or Warren or Klobuchar or one of these others falter, it could be enough room for him to step in and soak up a lot of votes. In third place, I think you're going to see a little bit of resurgence here for Elizabeth Warren. She's pulled well here previously before. I think she's just the bigger name here. If people decide they don't want to vote for Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, and I have Buttigieg in fourth and then Klobuchar in fifth, I think you could potentially swap Klobuchar in fifth and Warren in third for either one of them because in New Hampshire, Klobuchar took all of Warren's voters, so presumably that's what happened to Klobuchar in Iowa. So we could see them trading back and forth here with their voters, and I just don't see Pete Buttigieg making any inroads with any minority in the state of Nevada, so that's going to hurt him in whatever results may come his way. I'm not expecting a second-place finish out of him just because he, he literally has polled at 0% with black voters so far, and I, he's, he's polled even poorly among Hispanic voters. So he he has to show that he can make inroads, and until he does, I just don't believe in his capacity to do that very thing. Bernie is the only one in the polls sitting at or around 25%, which means there's still 75% of the vote that has to get divvied out. That means one of these people is going to be, and probably even two or three if it's divided, they're going to be in or around the 20% range instead of the 10 or 11% range, which we've seen them in other polls. So we're going, we know that they're going, there's going to be somebody who breaks out here. It's just a matter of who and why. So if there's a big moment at a debate, like Amy Klobuchar had, you will see that person get the boost. If you don't see anything there, it's probably going to go to somebody else. And we don't have a good feel of who has the momentum heading, aside from Bernie Sanders, who has good momentum heading into Nevada. So those are all my thoughts on Nevada and the New Hampshire race and everything moving forward. If you like that, or you have questions, comments, or corrections, or any feedback you want to send my way, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes. Or you can hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI.
Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. And remember, if you liked it and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews because those always help out. I hope you tune in again. But until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And I'll see you guys in the next episode.